and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. I'm Irene. And today we're talking about the Israeli poet Yona Volk. Before we start this episode, if you've listened to our episode on Oscar Wilde, you might have noticed at the end of that we said we were going to talk about Freddie Mercury next. We've made some changes to our schedule, so we will be talking about Freddie Mercury later this month on the 15th, but today we're talking about Yorna. We have some content warnings for this episode. There are mentions of the first Arab-Israeli war and death in the war, discussions of drug use, including mentions of overdose, mentions of abortion, discussions of mental illness, and mentions of suicide. There is no suicide in the episode, but there is mention of suicide, and discussions of institutionalization and mentions of medical malpractice in that context, mentions of Parkinson's disease, mentions and descriptions of murder, explicit discussions of sex and sadomasochism, mentions of violence and sexual assault, and mentions of cancer and death from cancer. We're also going to read and discuss some of Yona's poem, Tefillin, which includes the use of Tefillin in a violent and sexual context. There's also a brief mention of modern-day homophobia in the Israeli education system. So if any of that is something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other episodes. So before we actually start the episode, I just want to include the disclaimer that Yona lived in Israel for her whole life and, to the best of my knowledge, only spoke and wrote in Hebrew. So every quote from her and most of the other quotes in the episode are in translation, and I haven't been able to read a lot of primary sources. I also apologize for any Hebrew that I mispronounce. So yeah, speaking of sources, most of my information comes from a documentary called The Seven Tapes of Yorna Valach, and that was made mostly from a series of seven tapes of interviews that were done with Yorna before her death. And it's also got a lot of interviews with people who knew her. Okay. So you did have access to uh, primary sources through that then? Yeah. Another disclaimer about that is I was able to find that online with English subtitles. It's all in Hebrew. I watched it once and then I was never able to access it again. Oh. (laughs) Did you take thorough notes? I took thorough notes once, but I couldn't go back and check anything. But sometimes I had things like a quote and I hadn't caught the name of who said the quote. And so I would just have to be like, a friend of hers said this. I don't know who. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Yep. Any other information I have, I basically just cobbled together from biographical details in, like, books about her work. So, Yorna's born on the 10th of June in 1944 in the town of Kfar Ono. Kfar Ono is now a suburb of Tel Aviv, and it's now called Kiryat Ono, but at the time it was a rural town. Is that just because Tel Aviv was small? Yeah, Tel Aviv was pretty new at the time. Tel Aviv is a relatively recent city. Yorna said in an interview about her childhood, quote, I grew up in a natural setting and I was one of nature's things there. Both of Yorna's parents were Jewish immigrants from southeastern Europe. I tried to pinpoint and be like, they were from Romania. But then I was like, the borders in Europe have changed so much. Like, I cannot work out exactly what country they were from. So do you know where exactly they're from? You just don't know what country it was when they left? Yeah, so it's now Romania. Okay. I'm not sure what it was. Uh I'm a bit unclear, but it's around Romania. Okay. Cool. Um, her father, Michael, was killed when she was around four in the first Arab-Israeli war, mm-hmm. or the Israeli War of Independence, and that was when Israel gained its independence from the British mandate. So what she was born in wasn't Israel, but it's now Israel. With her father absent, Yona and her older sister, Nira, were raised by their mother, Esther. Esther co-owned and worked in the local cinema, and she was a single mother. She didn't have that much time kind of spend with her children. According to a friend, Yona, quote, grew up among the theatre seats. So mm-hmm. she had unsupervised access to kind of 
whatever films were showing. That sounds pretty great. Yeah. Like, for unsupervised <laughs> childhoods, because your mother isn't able to be there for you a lot. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, at least you just spend yeah. her time, like, watching movies. Yeah. It sounds pretty nice. And apparently her unsupervised access to films later inspired her poetry. So Yona did well in her early years of school, and she was writing her first poems by the time she was eight. Sadly, we don't have these. At least not in English. <laughs> As she got older, she became more rebellious. She took up smoking. She refused Ooh. to wear feminine clothing, so she liked to dress in tight jeans and men's button-up shirts. So, so it sounds a bit gay. <laughs> She's queer. <laughs> so I feel um, like I'm doing that now. <laughs> you are. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> well, you can cosplay as her. You need a lot more hair. Well, I'm not getting it. So oh. I've been through that part of the Jewish experience. And <laughs> <laughs> you're done. Yeah. Um, and her grades started falling as well, and by year 10 she was failing school and she was expelled. So Yona wasn't particularly phased by this. She believed that school just didn't appreciate how great she was, <laughs> and she apparently said to her mother, all you have to do is look at my face to know how special I am. <laughs> I'm glad that she has a great amount of confidence. Oh yeah, <laughs> she was yes. apparently fine with this. Yeah. She was very bright, but she lost interest in school. Also a relatable gay experience. <laughs> <laughs> While wearing tight jeans and a men's button-up shirt. <laughs> Yeah. So after she dropped out of school, or was expelled from school, but quite willingly, she started attending night classes at a fine art school in Tel Aviv. She never completed her studies there, I'm not sure why not, but she loved Tel Aviv and she made a great impression on the creative scene in Tel Aviv. So a friend of hers, Halid Yashrun, said later, I used to see her walking down Dizengoff Street like a great ship. Every man turned his head, and every woman turned her head. So you know how Tel Aviv is known now as, like, a very queer city? Yeah. When did it gain that reputation? Right now. <laughs> when Yorna arrived. <laughs> I don't know. Like, she was definitely part of the gay scene in Tel Aviv, but I'm not clear how big the gay scene in Tel Aviv was at the time. Yeah. I was very sad when I went to Tel Aviv. It was just after their Pride, well, Pride Week? Anyway, just after however long their Pride celebration is. And the um, hostel that I stayed in had Pride Room, which had, like, rainbow curtains, and they'd replace the sheets with rainbow sheets and everything. Oh my God. I was booked out, and I was like, God damn it. Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> I was like, on the one hand, this room is definitely full of people just having sex, but yeah, on the yeah. other hand, it looks amazing. I'm just imagining you, like, tucked into bed with a happy little smile on your face, and then, like, the camera pans out, and there's just all these couples on papers having, like, an orgy, and you're just like, I am snug and happy. And then you go to sleep. rainbow blankets. Yeah. Yeah. So, Yona arrived in Tel Aviv, and this was her introduction to a world of very anti-establishment, avant-garde, kind of creative artists and poets and musicians and all that kind of thing. At the time, the poets in this group, and sort of the young poets in Israel in general, were very disenchanted with the stuff status quo of Hebrew poetry, and they were kind of in the process of revolutionizing what was written about in Hebrew poetry. So Yona herself said, I hated Hebrew poetry and literature. It seemed like one big deception. They didn't speak to us about suffering. They didn't speak to us about madness. Everything was fat. Everything was national. Yeah, so it was very nationalistic at the time, basically. Surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see how that happened. <laughs> yeah. So this is all like modern language Hebrew poetry she's reacting to, just to be clear. Yes, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. We're talking about modern Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry being written in the 1960s. Yona is credited by her friend Aharon Shabtai for introducing what he calls the language of the self to Hebrew poetry. So talking about personal feelings and personal experiences rather than kind of epic and nationalistic themes. Mm-hmm. It must be such a weird feeling being like a poet writing in a language which is so recent, if you know what I mean. Like modern Hebrew. It had only been in use for sort of the past 
50 years or something. Yeah, I'm not really... I wonder how that feels. I don't know. That's not something that I read much about. How she felt specifically about kind of the Hebrew revival, for example. I assume these poets, though, like, can still have quite a measurable effect on the language. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Hmm. So much of what poets were doing at that time must have just been, like, brand new, never done before. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, new ways of using the language that hadn't mm-hmm. really been done yet. The way Yorna writes, it's very kind of stream of consciousness. Like, it's not very grammatical. She doesn't use full sentences, mm. stuff like that. Yeah, so she starts writing about, like, much more personal things than Hebrew poetry had previously been about. So, for example, one of her earliest poems, which I've been able to find in English, she wrote when she was about 19, and it's called Avshalom, and it's about her experience of abortion. The opening lines of Avshalom are, I must remember one more time my son Avshalom, whose hairs were caught in my womb, and I didn't get to finish my son Avshalom. So Avshalom in the Bible is the name of King David's son, who conspires to kill King David and take his place. And several lines in this poem echo the words in the Bible of this story. So the scholars of Freira Ludovsky-Cohen argues that this reflects Yona's ideas that in a society which largely defined women by motherhood, having a child would have taken away her sense of self and she would have just become known as a mother and metaphorically the child would have killed her own identity. I'm assuming by the fact that you haven't mentioned it that you don't know anything more about the context of her abortion? No. I know she had two abortions by the time she wrote this poem, but that's all I know. Okay. How old is she again? She's 19. That's quite a lot. That is quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, that is quite a lot. The information about that comes from the biography in Hebrew. That's by a man named Igor Sana. I can't tell you where he got that information or if there's anything further about that in that book. Yorna's in her late teens at this point, and in her late teens she attempted to publish some of her poetry, but she was generally turned down because she refused to accept editor's revisions to her poems. Well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess I understand both sides of that equation. Yeah. 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 And I think poetry especially, Mm. it's very like I have chosen every single word. Yes. Yeah. So I see why you'd refuse revisions. Especially depending on what their remarks were, given how she's like not writing mainstream Hebrew poetry of the day or whatever. Yeah, that's true. She's obviously writing about very like personal, quite like sensitive things. Like, any revision there yeah. kind of feels like calling her experience into question, I guess. Mm-hmm. But also she's a first-time writer. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, both, of those, yeah, both of those things. But I can definitely see how an editor suggesting an improvement can make, mm. could have come across to her, like, you're describing your abortion wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true, that's true. I think it'd be a little bit more compelling if you wrote about your abortion this way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, conversely, like, she's 19, she's never been published this is yep. how we get Anne Rice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Who's excellent, obviously, so. So, like, maybe they should have just published Yona's work. So her first poem was published in January 1964, so she's still 19 at this point, but almost 20, when a friend sent it into a literary magazine. I'm not clear if there were any changes, any revisions made to this poem on publication, but the literary magazine liked it. She had a second poem published later that month, and then within the next few months, several more. Were they under her name when the friend sent them in? I think so. Yeah, okay. So by April of 1964, the literary magazine Haboke was listing her, who was still just 19, as one of the most important young Israeli avant-garde poets. Wow, nice job, Yona. Yeah. Um, Mir Wizzeltier, who was a friend of hers and also a poet and critic, described her poetry as being born fully formed like Athena from Zeus's head, which I thought was good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, 
He didn't see the writing process, I guess. <laughs> she was probably there like, nice, I fooled him. <laughs> he was a friend. I don't know how like close a friend in terms of seeing her writing process. Oh, yeah, okay, true, yeah. <laughs> so, Yorna's major interest in her late teens and early 20s was basically to experience everything she could in order to translate it into poetry. She wrote in her diary, I am the laboratory and the scientist. So she experimented with drugs and with sex and with alcohol and all these kinds of things, basically believing that she had to lose control of her inhibitions in order to have a kind of pure experience of reality that was uninfluenced by kind of societal expectations and the societal lens that people usually view things through. And then she would translate that into poetry. So what kind of drugs is she doing? So I'm not sure the full scope of what kind of drugs she's doing. I know she's doing LSD. Okay. That's the only drug I can tell you by name that she's doing. Okay. From hearing your, like, description of her motivation for doing this and knowing the time period, I would have been like, yeah, she's doing LSD. Yeah. 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 I don't know if she's doing anything else, but she's doing LSD. This whole understanding of hallucinogens has given you a, like, clearer version of reality thing comes up every now and then, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Personally, don't feel that way, but have fun. Yeah, you want to definitely subscribe to that view. Okay. <laughs> well, enjoy the 60s, I guess. <laughs> she does enjoy the 60s. Yes. In this same year, she voluntarily checked herself into a psychiatric hospital in Jerusalem and spent three months there. When asked why later, she replied, because it intrigued me. Oh, and basically, oh, okay. they prescribed LSD in psychiatric hospitals, oh. and she wanted access to it. Okay. All right. So she found a doctor who was basically willing to give her what she wanted. So did she, like, make up some symptoms? I'm not clear okay. on how she exactly went about this. She basically said that she found a doctor who didn't really know or care what he was doing, was just like, have the drugs you want. Good job. Her friend Mare <laughs> says that the doctor was a self-serving man who was basically experimenting with the effects of LSD on oh, Yorna, yeah. well. and that she... She almost overdosed because of this. But she seems to feel quite positively about the experience. I mean, she definitely went into this like, I want to try everything. Give me all the drugs you've got. Yeah. And this doctor was like, hmm, I want to try everything on you. Have all the drugs I've got. I guess that's true. Yeah. She got out of this what she wanted when she went in and her friends were kind of like, but yeah. How old is she now? Uh, She's 20. Or 19. I'm not sure when in 1964 this happened. So yeah, Yona thinks her experiences in hospital with LSD were pretty positive. She talks about how it heightened her senses. She does note in later interviews that she doesn't credit her drug use with the success of her poetry and that her mind and her imagination were naturally rich and it's not that she needed drugs to do good work. Okay. Okay, I mean, that's helpful. So she's like, I need to do a bunch of drugs to write good poetry done the drugs turns out i was just great (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. so she left hospital so she voluntarily checks herself in can she just leave whenever she wants i think so i'm not sure i don't have any information about her struggling to leave or anything so i think she was just like yeah okay i'm good now and left i mean i guess the questionable doctor that signed her in would also questionably sign her out (laughs) maybe so well i feel like if she's got a questionable doctor that signed her in who's enjoying experimenting on her you also might not sign her out yeah true yeah no i'm really not sure i don't know I, i'm just being influenced by like one flew the cookies nest i guess <laughs> that like it's easy to get in but it's not easy to get out so oh, okay yeah yeah but i don't know but she got apparently out apparently not it's cool yeah she only spent a few months there and then she left two years later in 1966 she published her first book which is called dehorim and that means things <laughs> <Imaginative> title. 
<laughs> yeah. It's from the Bible. Oh, okay. Why is it from the Bible? It's one of the books. Oh, is it Deuteronomy? Yeah, yeah it's Deuteronomy. Yeah, I haven't got it written down here anymore because I didn't think we would have a conversation about the word Devarim, but here we are. There was another female poet whose name, as I said, I haven't got written down, who was writing around this time or a little bit before, who used this word quite significantly in one of her poems, and Yorna was inspired by that. Yorna wrote many of the poems in Devarim while she was still a teenager, but they're considered some of her best work. They're very fairy tale-like, kind of dream-like poems. They're also very dark poems. So, for example, the first poem in the book is called Yonatan, and it's about a group of children murdering another child in order to drink his blood. Okay. That does sound like something someone of her age might write. That sounds like edgy teen poetry. (laughs) I don't mean not that to be a, disparaging. Not in a yeah, not in a dismissive way, but that sounds like what a teen writes. I just it's something that young writers sometimes do, just playing with like very yeah. extreme imagery. Yeah, and I guess she is just playing with writing about a lot of kind of taboo ideas mm. and like very graphic yes. themes. Yeah. My yeah. first novel was about a serial killer. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's not some of my best work and won't be remembered by Israel, but okay. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> At the time that she published Devarim, Yona was becoming quite successful or at least quite well known as a poet. So her poetry readings drew large crowds. So they were very dramatic poetry readings. So one reading, for example, which I think was at this time, she suggested that she be lying in a coffin on stage (laughs) while everyone else read their poems. And then when it came her turn to read her poem, she would rise up out of her coffin and dramatically read her poem. The My Chemical Romance Approach. (laughs) (laughs) I feel a great affection for this woman. If we could time travel, we could organise a collaboration between her and My Oh, good, yes. (laughs) She does collaborate with some bands later on. Oh, good. She's primed to collaborate with my chemical romance. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. The organisers of the poetry reading were like, nah, and she didn't do it, which I'm very sad about. Despite the success of things like her poetry readings, her early books weren't well-liked by critics, and they didn't sell all that well. And this was probably because they were very controversial. Partly, Hebrew poetry at the time was a very male-dominated sphere, and Yorna was one of the first female voices to break into that, and so people weren't quite sure how to deal with that yet. And her poems also talk very unashamedly about sexuality in a way that hadn't been done definitely by women before, and basically not in Hebrew poetry before, and they also explore the sexual expectations on women and kind of the role that women are forced into in society. I feel like we've just done this, like, whole paragraph before. You know, just in, like, other episodes. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. When you started reading that, I was like, I feel like this is what every female poet has written about. Yeah. And I- it continues to be controversial. It does. It does. Yeah, it's true. Like, literally every female writer we talk about, it's like, she mentioned that women have desires. It didn't sell well. People were uncomfortable with that. <laughs> but they were also kind of into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. They turned up to the readings, but they were like, I'm not buying the book. <laughs> One example of this is her poem Cornelia, which is from Devarim. And just before I read this poem out, I'll note, as I mentioned, that her poems aren't very grammatically correct. I hope you can follow this when it's read aloud. I think it'll be fine. Here is the poem. In the middle of the night, the devil appeared and told Cornelia that this is the time, and Cornelia, who lacks initiative and must. Cornelia and the devil went in the middle of the night to pick nettles. The devil got tired and retired. Cornelia had a nettle rash and picked. It was thinkable, really, that Cornelia is a red devil. In the morning, the men did to her, because they thought that Cornelia is a red she-devil, and Cornelia did not know. She always thought they do to her, because she is Cornelia. So basically, scholars writing about this poem have interpreted Cornelia's encounter with the devil as representing her sexual initiation. 
which she's represented as being a very passive actor in. It says Cornelia lacked initiative and just kind of goes along with it. And so she's led into this sexual initiation, but then when she continues it of her own accord, so it says the devil retired and she continued picking nettles, she's immediately victimized by other men for her actions and for choosing to do that. And she can't really understand why or what standards are being applied to her because it doesn't make sense. I feel like that explanation hasn't really addressed the part where the metaphor is that they mistake her for the devil because of the nettle rash. It is worth noting that specifically it says that she is mistaken for a red she-devil. Mm. So she's not mistaken for the same devil we saw at the start of the poem. She's just for another devil. She's mistaken for mm. a female devil. I yeah. guess it's like the sign of what she had done, picking nettles with the devil, is on her in the form of the nettle rash. Therefore, mm. they she understand her as different now. Why Cornelia? So, firstly, a lot of the poems in Devarim have names of women which are not Hebrew names, okay. and which Hebrew speakers reading these poems would kind of see as exotic names from elsewhere. Oh, okay. You can analyse why that is if you want. <laughs> Secondly, and I'm not sure how you pronounce it because I can't read Hebrew vowels. Could <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could have looked this up, but I didn't look this up because I didn't think I would be asked why Cornelia. Oh, okay. That's, yeah. Like, my point is, I've seen this written down in Hebrew, oh, but I okay. can't remember right, what yeah, the vowels yeah. are. I forgot that I was doing this to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did this to me unexpectedly. Corn, like the first syllable of Cornelia, those consonants are found in a word in Hebrew, which means something like glow or okay. something like that, which... And I don't know how speculative this is, because once again, I don't speak Hebrew, but I know one of the scholars I read who analysed her poems associated that word with the um kind of bright red skin of the red nettle rash. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So mm. there's definitely more to be said about that, and I have read more about that that I can't remember off the top of my head. So I've mentioned that Yona was experimenting a lot with sex at this time. Um, I see we're up to the gay content. Yes, she's sleeping with a lot of people. We know a bit about some of her male partners in terms of their names and who they were. I'm not going to talk about them in any detail. I like that you say in terms of their names and who they were as if that's like not a lot of information. I mean, like, I know their names and I can tell you, like, this man oh, okay. was a rock musician in this band. Okay, that's very cool. Yeah. Can you tell us who the rock musician was? His name's Yuval Rivlin. She has a relationship with him much later on, which I haven't really included, but he was classically trained pianist oh. and then became a keyboardist in a rock band, which I think is called Atmosphera. Cool. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to Google this later. I'm Spotifying it right now. Anyway, yeah, so like that's one of the men that she has a relationship with. My point was we know a bit about the men she had relationships with, but I don't know any of the names of her female partners. But cool. you know she had them. I know she had them, and I can tell you a bit about them, and maybe if you were really versed in the Tel Aviv gay scene at the time, you'd be like, <laughs> oh, that's that girl. <laughs> uh, okay. So if we, like, interviewed someone who was gay in Tel Aviv at this time, they'd be like, oh, yeah. They might even be like, that's me. How big a gay scene are we even talking? How big is Tel Aviv at this point? Probably at this time there's around a million people in Tel Aviv. I don't know how many are gay. Like most. (laughs) In the Hebrew biography of Yona, Igal Sana does talk about her female relationships, and I'm not sure if he talks about anyone by name. But the only information that I found about these relationships was somebody else saying Igor Sana mentioned some of her female relationships. For example, here's a couple. So I assume there's more information in the Hebrew biography. If you read Hebrew listeners, please tell us. I want to know. (laughs) But she is definitely 
having relationships with women. So Mia Wizzletear says, quote, she acted like a man who hops into bed with every girl he fancies and wants to spend the night with. Sana talks about a couple of her partners, not by name, but giving descriptions. He describes her as being in a love triangle with two women who were themselves friends and you want to met one through the other. One of them, all I know about her in English is that she was, according to the book I read, quote, attracted to women, death, and astrology. Oh my god. <laughs> so gothic. That's such a, like, description on your dating profile thing to say. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> and the other who was her friend was the daughter of a notable Israeli art collector. All okay. right. That's all I know about them. Ooh. I'm sorry, I can't give you more. That's okay. Are we done with the gay content now? <laughs> Not done with the queer content. I see. Yes. The plot thickens. Plot thickens. Yona, unfortunately for us, never wrote about her personal relationships. She said, I don't think I've ever written a love poem. I want to keep it as an experience, not turn it into words. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting considering everything else you told us, how she was Hmm. like, I need to have every experience so I can put them in my poetry. Yeah, yeah. But obviously she decided that romance or... So does she write about sex, but not about romance? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Part of the point I was also making is she doesn't write about specific people. Oh, okay. So she writes sex scenes, but... That is sort of misc sex scenes. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Misc limbs. (laughs) Yeah. That's unfortunate for us. It is unfortunate for us. Yeah. But that's what it is. All right. I like it best when they write poems that are called, like, My Girlfriend Hannah. She works at the school. (laughs) she is very beautiful (laughs) I'm gay we wrote a poem (laughs) that was wonderful thank you I hope Hannah is happy (laughs) presumably we have at least one listener called Hannah I mean statistically we must well this one goes out to you Hannah (laughs) I'm sorry if we've given you the most uncomfortable commute of your life please tell us something about the poem Okay, several of Yana's poems are, however, explicitly about having female lovers, so they are talking about sex with women. Okay. They're mostly not available in English. Oh, what the... (laughs) (laughs) One of the two I have been able to find in English is called Tutim, which means strawberries. That's cute. It is. I like that word. Tutim. She wrote this later on in life, so in 1983, but I thought I'd read it now while we were talking about the gay stuff. So before I begin reading this poem... I'll say that the scholar Gilad Padva sees strawberries in this poem as a metaphor for the clitoris, so you can think about that as we read the poem, if you want to think about how gay it is. Okay. I'll also note that the person being addressed in this poem is explicitly gendered female in Hebrew, which doesn't come across in English. Okay. Because the pronoun you is gendered in Hebrew and not in English. I'm very glad that we dodged the all of our words being gendered bullet. Yeah, we're going to chat about that later on. Okay. Okay, here's the poem. When you come to lie with me, you shall wear a black dress patterned with strawberries and a black bonnet decorated with strawberries and hold a little basket of strawberries and sell me strawberries. (laughs) Which we started giggling. How dare you? Anyway. Anyway. There's more. Strawberries. You'll say in a sweet little voice, strawberries, strawberries, who wants strawberries? Don't wear anything under the dress. Then strings will pull you up, invisible or visible, and bring you down straight on my cock. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's the poem. Why doesn't that get a fruit analog? <laughs> nah. Okay. <laughs> I just like, I'm giggling immaturely. Just the fact that it was like, you'll wear a dress with a strawberry print. Clitoris dress. <laughs> <laughs> metaphor, Aaron. A metaphor for the clitoris. No, 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 no. I think Aaron's onto something here. <laughs> 
Okay, okay. I would love to hear how that sounds in Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, it's actually been recorded by a musician. Oh, that oh. sounded super set up uh, as a question. <laughs> His name's Aaron Zur. Okay. And he's on Spotify. Oh. So look him up. Several scholars that I read who wrote about this poem interpreted the final lines as showing that Yona is writing from a male perspective rather than the voice of a queer woman. Okay. The linguist Rachel Giora, for example, writes that Yona, quote, assumes a guy's man's voice, language, and fantasies. All right. So is any of the grammar indicating a gender for the speaker? No. Oh, well, that's inconvenient, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's deliberate as well. Okay. Um, so in an interview around the time she wrote this poem, an interviewer commented to Yona that some of your poems look more like male topics of conversation than like women's poems. And Yona answered... I don't think I deal with male topics. When I sang, I also always sang in a bass voice. So I think she's basically saying, like, it sounds like something you'd expect a man to say, but no, it's still my voice. Yeah. I'm not writing as a man. Yeah. And that's a thing you see weirdly often, that thing where a female writer writes something from first person about attraction to another woman and all the critics go, interesting how she chose to write in a man's perspective. I yeah. mean, to be fair to them in this case, and only like a little bit fair to them, yeah. there is a cock present. And like, strap-ons have existed for thousands of years. I'm not saying they haven't. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, they can make that line of thinking more plausible than they always <laughs> yeah. can, I guess. It's got a little bit more in it. But yeah. They have a little something yeah. to like hang their hat on there. <laughs> I apologize for that. <laughs> <laughs> that was an error, I'm sorry. We will talk a bit more about Yona's relationship with her gender and ideas about gender later on, but that's all for now. We're going to move on now. You're just going to bring that up and then just like... I mean, like, you can say more about it if you no, want, no, no, but I'm just no, flagging no. that that isn't the end of that conversation, so it's not like, get all your gender thoughts out now. Okay, I couldn't possibly. <laughs> In the late 1960s, Yona began to struggle with her mental health. One of her partners, Georg Davis, I think it's Georg, it's George without an E. They definitely said it aloud in that documentary that I was only allowed to watch once. <laughs> and this was when I was like, I'll go ahead and check how they said that name. And it was like, no, you won't. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. Um, quick question about him. Yeah. How many spiders would you say he eats a year? <laughs> I would say that he's an outlier and so should not be counted. <laughs> anyway, we're oh, talking about your struggles with her mental health. I'm so sorry. Serious. So, yeah, Gail describes her as um, being, quote, like the sun surrounded by planets. So living at the center of this very exciting and very creative group of people. But he also says that she was kind of constantly switched on and unable to switch off and struggling to find time for herself or kind of time to process everything, basically. Mm -hmm. So during the late 60s, she describes herself as being lonely, anxious, and unwell. She became more and more hostile to her friends. So her friend Halit Yeshurun remembers coming to her house one day with Yona's editor, Menachem Perry, and that Yona opened the door and then said, oh, it's you, and shut the door in their faces. Oh. Yeah. She began to experience paranoia, so Mir Wizzletear remembers that she was telling mutual friends that he was planning to murder them. Oh, like murder the friend? Yeah. Oh, gosh. And Menachem received phone calls where she accused him of stealing her poems from her mind via telepathy and plagiarizing them. Oh, dear. Yeah, so she's not, okay. not doing well. Her friends became concerned eventually that she was becoming suicidal and had her committed to Batyam Hospital. Later in her life, Yona described being committed to this hospital as a kidnapping. She said that she was stuffed with drugs and injections that she didn't want, and she felt that writing was her only defense. Interestingly, she doesn't mean that psychologically as writing being a kind of 
escape or anything. She specifically hoped that if she wrote well enough and became well known enough, then no one would be able to do anything bad to her because there would be enough people kind of keeping an eye on what was happening to her. That's like quite bleak, honestly. It's pretty bleak, yeah. It's pretty bleak. So she stayed in hospital for four and a half months, and then she left hospital, and she moved back home to Kiat Ono to live with her mother, Esther. Esther had Parkinson's disease by this point, and so Yona continued to care for Esther and kind of lived back and forth between Kiat Ono and Tel Aviv for the rest of her life. In 1973, so five years after her time in hospital, Yona turned up at Menachem Perry's house, so her editor, and he describes her as being a totally different person. Quote, calm, moderate, she refused a shot of whiskey and asked for milk. Aw. Why not have both? <laughs> oh, <laughs> <Sorry>. gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. So I'm a little worried that her disposition has changed so much. Nobody else seems worried about this, and this okay. isn't something that is talked about. Was that just very restful? She's out of the busy scene now, and so her mental health has become more stable? Maybe that's the case. Okay. I'm very suspicious of this. Look, fair enough, but honestly, concerns about her mental health didn't really come up again. Okay. So I don't know. Well, good, I suppose. Yeah. So yeah, she went to visit Menachem, and he says that she brought poems with her, which, quote, shocked me at first until I realized how brilliant they were. Okay. So between 1977 and 1978, she was very successful in her poetry. She received three literary prizes, including the Prime Minister's Prize for Literature. Um, Did she own a racehorse, though? No, I don't think she ever owned a racehorse. <laughs> Just thought I'd put that out there. Aquility poets do not need to compete along the metric of race horses. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> she also, to the best of my knowledge, never owned a monkey, <laughs> which is frankly unusual. <laughs> true. Um. But yeah, she's now in her mid-30s. She's doing quite successfully with her poetry. During the 1970s, several musicians also started performing pieces of Yona's work. And in 1982, she herself collaborated with the musicians Ilan Ritzberg and Shimon Geltz on an album called Batsyatov, which means good vintage or good wine or good harvest, depending on what book you're reading. Okay. okay. And they set some of her poems to music. Yona performed with the band, but she had a very complicated relationship with performing. So Shimon and Elan recall that every time they were going to do a show together, they kind of worried she wouldn't turn up and they'd have to call her and beg her to come. And this was oh. kind of a standard part of their pre-show ritual and then she'd show up and it would be fine. I wouldn't continue to have a working relationship with this woman. <laughs> What, what I'm getting from this is that the mental health is possibly still an issue. I don't, I don't know. know. I mean, when is it mental health issues and when is it just intense stage fright, though? Like, where's I the mean, line? Is that, yeah, that's an impossible line to draw, really. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. The musician Danny Dortan, who interviewed Yona, and we're going to talk a bit later about the interview he did with her, said, quote, Had she been born a few years later, she would have been a punk vocalist. But Ilan remembers that while she wanted to sing with the band, she couldn't really hold a tune and that they had to kind of explain to her, you know, we'd much rather you just read your poetry aloud. We feel that that works a lot better. I mean, famously, punk doesn't require you to hold a tune. <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess that's true. In 1982, as well as performing with this band, Yona also published the poem Tefillin, which is her most famous and also her most controversial poem. Tefillin are leather boxes with specific quotes from Torah written on parchment inside them. They come in pairs. Two are Tefillin, one is technically Tefillah, but a lot of people will just use Tefillin to refer to one or two. One is tied to the non-dominant arm, the other is tied around the head using leather straps, and they're generally worn during morning prayers. Was that morning prayers as in in the morning or as in when you're grieving? At the beginning of the day. Okay. 
Yeah, generally worn while praying at the beginning of the day. In Orthodox traditions, tefillin are generally worn only by men. Orthodox people are often violently opposed to the wearing of tefillin by women. I mean, like you know, not all of them, but some of them are. It's an issue. Tefillin are obviously seen by many people as a very sacred ritual religious object. It appears that in the context of this poem, which we're going to read, Yona is seeing them as a symbol of gender disparity and of masculine power. Oh. And subverting that in this poem through depicting their use in a graphic, violent, and sexual context. Well, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to read the whole poem. It's frankly a lot, and I didn't really want to. I mean, I assume your discomfort is because of the use of a holy object in a sex setting as opposed to just a discomfort with having S&M content on the spot. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah, like that's quite uncomfortable. I just thought it was worth. Yeah, I'll read you some excerpts to give you an idea. I have chosen some of the less graphic excerpts. We'll post it, like, under a cut, because I know a bunch of you are like, give it to me, give me the poem. Yeah, we will post it, we'll put it under a cut, you can read it, it's it's a lot. What are you going to tag that with? Well, I'm not going to tag it with Teflon. <laughs> I mean, but it's called that. It is. <laughs> but I want some poor person on Tumblr who's just like, I want to look at, like, how much Teflon content is there. I don't know how much Teflon content is on Tumblr. Maybe the only one. No, it's no, not. No, there'll be some. Let me know about from <laughs> I've never heard that word. Anyway, let's read the poem. You'll put the teflon for me, wrap them on my hands, play them in me, pass them delicately over my body, rub them well in me, everywhere arouse me. It goes on, and I'm not going to read this part, to become increasingly sadomasochistic and describes a very sadomasochistic sex scene using teflon. And ends, and I've abridged this quote a little bit, but it ends, Afterwards I'll pass them on your body. Slowly, 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 around your neck I'll pass them. I'll pull and pull until you expire, until I strangle you totally with the teflon. Yeah, okay. All right, cool. Um, I guess I'll spend some of my life trying to forget this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read that poem. People were obviously very outraged mm-hmm. about this poem. Mm-hmm. Yona argued, quote, In Judaism, blasphemy is part of the love of God. Okay. I think you could make a case for that. I don't know that this is the best expression of that particular part of the Jewish relationship (laughs) with God, but... Here it is. You know. Yeah. Her Jewish experience is no less valid than mine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The literary journal which published this poem received threatening letters and threatening phone calls when they published it. So what was this literary journal? I'm just wondering if they're kind of like, no, this is a good poem and like... We don't believe in censoring art just because it's controversial and it deserves to be published, or if they were like clickbait. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. I, that could go either way. I'm not sure. It could be both. The Orthodox poet Zelda, who up until this point was a friend of Yona's, said, When I saw Yona's poem, I thought that I wished I were dead. Following this, she broke off her friendship with Yona and she refused to ever have her work published alongside Yona's ever again. The Deputy Minister of Education, Miriam Tassaglaser, described Yona as, quote, Simply disturbed and an animal in heat. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so up until this point, Yona had been pretty well known in poetic circles, but she wasn't, as poets generally aren't, I guess, generally known by the general populace. After Miriam Tassaglaser made these comments, it brought Yona into the public eye as having been denounced by the Deputy Minister of Education, and she became a household name. Okay. So we've mentioned that she has a bunch of other sexual poems, and we read one, the strawberry one. Mm-hmm. But the strawberry one is far less shocking and provocative than to film. Yeah. 
do you feel like the strawberry one is more indicative of like her general work or she does have another series of poems which she published i think a year or two after to fill in the same time she published the strawberry one so you know the strawberry one opened when you come to lie with me Mm-hmm. she's got a whole series that open with when you come to lie with me or when you come to sleep with me mm-hmm. i'm not sure if that's a different translation or if they open with slightly different sentences but mm-hmm. it's part of a series the strawberry one is definitely the most uh, most palatable maybe is the way to say it of that oh. series one's when you come to lie with me come like a policeman one oh. is come like a judge oh, one okay. is come like my father and one is come like god well this so, is interesting yeah, because there are four of them and there's so much in them, I was like, we just don't have space. Oh, okay. There's certainly more, like, fodder for people wanting to find out about her feelings about male authority figures in a sexual context, yeah. is what you're telling me. <laughs> definitely, yeah. definitely. Alrighty. Yeah. And the policeman one is definitely also sadomasochistic. The god one is obviously also, you know? Slightly about religion. <laughs> about religion. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot happening here. Okay. So we'll put them on the blog. So Yana obviously wrote this poem knowing the reactions she would get. Yeah. And she didn't tone herself down or anything in response. She doesn't seem like she would. No. So the following year, in 1983, she posed in the magazine Monitin for a series of photographs which were inspired by the poem. Oh, dear. (laughs) In which she, fully clothed, appears alongside a model, a male model, who is nude except for Tefillin. That sounds like it could be, like, quite tastefully done. I can show you the photos. Please do. They're online. Show me the naked man. Sure. There's one. Yeah, like, without the context of a poem, that's, you know, not that shocking to me. Yeah, yeah. Like, I can see how they would be. And, like, obviously, when these photos came out, everyone knew the poem. Mm. So nobody was looking at these out of the context of the poem. Yeah, yeah, I think there are a few more, but I'll have to hunt around and put them on the blog. Well, our blog is about to have everything tagged, not safe for work. Please remember to get a filter if you don't want that. Yeah. Yona and Uri Dotan, who was the model, appeared in these photographs. Yeah. The shoot itself was apparently very erotically charged. The photographer said, she came into the studio with so much sexual energy that it was almost embarrassing. So who's this model? Like, what does he think of this? Because <laughs> I assume it's quite a big deal to agree to do this yeah. Yeah, in this photo shoot. The photo shoot appeared alongside an interview conducted by Danny Dotan, who I mentioned before. He's a musician. Okay. He also apparently did an interview. I'm not sure how much of a journalist he was, but he was enough of a journalist to do this interview. And basically, they wanted to do this photo shoot alongside the interview. And they were like, who are we going to get? And he was like, eh, no, ask my brother. So Uri Dotan is Danny Dotan's brother. Oh, and he was just like, yeah. And he was just like, yeah. And so this is the first person they asked. I don't know if they asked a bunch of people and they were like, no one's saying yes, I'm going to get my brother to do it. Or if he was like, who the hell can I get to agree to this? Oh, my brother would do my it. My brother would do it. <laughs> <laughs> Uri said that basically... At the time, and I'm sure, sorry if you pronounce his name Yuri, there's no Y on the start in this transliteration, so I'm saying Uri. He said that at the time he didn't really think about what he was doing. His brother uh. was like, hey, do you want to meet in this shoot? He was like, sure. Like, it was kind of a few years later. He was like, that was a huge deal. So did he have the full context of the poem when he agreed to do it? Yeah, like, he knew who Yona was, he had the context, but... I think he just didn't really think about it in a big picture way. He was just like, yeah, I'll do this shoot. So does this affect his career or life going forward? Not that I'm aware of. Oh, okay, well, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah, he may have just, like, 
been at some place in his life where that wasn't he was the quite, religious context didn't affect him personally. He was quite and, young at the time. Yeah, yeah. Like I think early twenties or something. I'm not sure exactly how old he was. So young. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, these photos and this interview were published. The most erotic of the photos were vetoed by the deputy graphics editor of Monotin. He was quite a conservative religious man and he threatened to resign if they were published. I can't what? believe he let this photo shoot happen at all then. <laughs> what yeah. are they? Like, are they so presumably more erotic than those ones? Do we not have them at all? I've never seen them. Oh. That's all I know about it is there were more erotic ones that were not published. Okay. I don't know if they were destroyed or if they still exist in Monotin's archives or what the case is. I am very interested to know. Well, I'll try looking into it further as best I can. Yeah. Yeah. Having gone through that massive reaction to it, should we have a bit of a chat about, like, what we think it's appropriate for art to depict? Because I feel like if we're just like, oh, that's shocking, we're just sort of, I don't know, are we tacitly supporting that reaction? I feel personally that, like, sure, it's shocking, but from where I'm standing, shocking art is an acceptable thing to produce. You produce shocking art, you get that kind of response, and that's almost the process there, I guess. That's the reaction she wanted? That was part of producing the art, I guess, was knowing that it would get this reaction. Mm. And I think, you know, you want to write the poem to shock, but also wrote the poem to kind of confront ideas of male power. And mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what makes it, like, a worthwhile piece of art. Yeah. yeah. Is I... that it is saying something. I'm not a big fan of art that is provocative and then, like, doesn't really have anything to say. Yeah, and I feel she did have something to say. Whether that was lost in amongst the shock or not I don't know like I don't know how many people really sat down and were like huh okay I'm gonna contemplate this Mm. and how many were just busy being like oh my god I can't believe Yona wrote this but I suppose if it's deeply provocative it reaches a much wider audience and so the overall net gain Mm. of people who actually think about male power structures and so forth is probably bigger than if she'd toned it down yeah yeah and it had just stayed within her circle yeah i guess that's true and probably i mean obviously within her circle there were people who were not comfortable with this poem like zelda for example who broke up her friendship with yona but within that bohemian anti-establishment circle she probably wouldn't have been as shocking yeah Mm. not had as much of an effect i guess because this is, would have been more in keeping with the conversations that group was probably having. One of Yona's friends did say that Yona talked about God and kind of about religion and things like that a lot more than was kind of normal within her mm. circle. Yeah, okay. that's not surprising. Yeah. In the interview that appeared alongside these photographs, that's where the other quote that I read where she said, you know, I sing in a bass voice came from. This is a stupid question, but was that metaphorical or did she have a very deep voice? You can listen to some recordings of her and find out. Cool. You can hear Batutov. Okay. From memory, she does have quite a deep voice. So in this interview, she talked more about her relationship with gender. So Danny said to her, as a woman, you're out of the ordinary, to which she responded, I'm not at all certain. I believe that as a man, I'm quite out of the ordinary. I believe I am an extraordinary man. So it seems from this and other things she said, which I'll read in a minute, that she felt that kind of to be respected as a poet, she had to not just not be identified as a female poet, but just a poet, but to even distance herself from kind of her womanhood or her femininity. So she explained this further in a later interview in which she said, I was never enough of a woman. I was always half male. I had to dress like a man. I had to act like half a man. I didn't want to. I was forced to without noticing it. There was a need to identify with something stronger than I was in my feminine environment. Like all women, I learned to hate women, to hate weakness. I learned to love men and to be half male. She definitely overall also saw just the gender binary as being negative and damaging. I mean, true. true, Yeah, (laughs) That's a fact. So to quote one of her poems titled Another Bourgeois... (laughs) 
You distinguish between man and his fellow woman, a different kind of primordial sin. The more you split the world in two, the more the world will split you in two in return. Regarding that, the more the world will split you in two. I just thought that was interesting in conjunction with the quote you read us earlier about her saying she was always had to be half a man. Mm. She can't just inhabit the middle space. She has to be. Mm. And she had to distance herself from a half of her identity, the, what she sees as the female mm. half of her identity, and be more masculine than she otherwise would. Yeah. Yeah. So in her poem, Hebrew is a Sex Maniac, she also attacked the way in which gender. In her poem, what? Hebrew <laughs> is a Sex Maniac? You said that she didn't have express any feelings about writing in Hebrew. Is that what's going to happen here? I guess I was talking then specifically she doesn't express any feelings about writing in a revived language or, you know, a language that has had the unusual journey that Hebrews had. Yeah. She does express feelings about Hebrew and okay. what it can do and what it can't do. All right, go on. Yeah. So her poem is called Hebrew is a Sex Maniac. And that is the English word sex maniac, transliterated into Hebrew. Oh. Oh, okay. Please pronounce that last. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> she attacks the way that gender is encoded in Hebrew. In English, gender basically comes up in singular third-person pronouns. Yeah. He and she. In Hebrew, all pronouns except first-person pronouns are gendered. Mm-hmm. Either masculine or feminine. There's no neuter. Adjectives and verbs are also masculine or feminine, depending on the gender of the person they're referring to or the person doing the action. Oh, verbs are gendered. Verbs are gendered in Hebrew. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. That's very gendered. Yeah. It does interestingly mean that if you talk about yourself, you're automatically announcing your gender, which is something we don't do in English. Yeah. But yeah, it also means that gender is just there a lot more than it is in English. Mm. Also, when talking about a group of both men and women in the plural, you will always revert to the masculine form. What language doesn't do that? I was going to say that's fairly common. That's basically the norm, I think, in languages with masculine and feminine. I've never met a language that doesn't do it. Like, that doesn't mean that that is all languages, but I've never met one that doesn't do it. Yeah, no, nor have I. Yeah. I mean, most of my languages are ancient languages, so like, you know. (laughs) Yeah. In this poem, Yona compares Hebrew disfavorably to English in kind of how it uses gender. Did Yona speak English? Not that I'm aware of. But I guess she must have known enough about English to know how English pronouns worked, at least. So maybe she did speak English. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's interesting, then, that she would choose English over some less gendered language, I suppose. I don't know if Yorna spoke English and that's why she chose English, or if English, because it's such a widely spoken language, was just generally seen as a language to compare your language to, or what the situation is. But she does compare it to English. I'm going to read you a bit of this poem. It's quite long. I'll just read you some quotes. And I do want to note before I read the poem that when the word sex comes up in the poem, that's the Hebrew word min, and that translates as both sex and gender. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, pronouns in English have all the possibilities. Every I, potentially, is every possible sex, and every you female is you male. And all things are this, no man, no woman. There is no need to think before you relate to sex. Hebrew is a sex maniac. Hebrew unjustly shows favour and disfavour, grants rights and privileges. Language peeps on you from the keyhole. The language sees you naked. Not entirely on topic of Yona's biography, but on this topic. More recently, Hebrew speakers have come up with some gender-neutral endings for words and some gender-neutral pronouns. In Hebrew, masculine words generally have no ending, and feminine words generally end in a. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's, you know, more than that, and there's always irregular words and different things, but that's the general idea. A Jewish summer camp in America have started using the ending ol as a gender-neutral ending based on the word kol, which means all, or the word kolel, which means inclusive. 
I heard about this yeah. because I hear about every gay Jewish thing that happens. <laughs> I'm glad you are really on top of the gay Jewish world. In case we weren't sure that you were gay and Jewish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the University of Colorado has also, in teaching their Hebrew course, they teach the gender-neutral ending eh and gender-neutral pronouns based on this ending. So, for example, the feminine form of the pronoun you is at, masculine is ata, and they teach ate as a neutral option. Okay. Okay. Do you know where they pulled that at from? I think they were inspired by what has been done by some Spanish speakers in trying to do the same thing in Spanish. They do have a website which is called Non-Binary Hebrew or something like that, which I will link on the blog, and they go through their full conjugations that are based off this ending. Cool. But this is something that the University of Colorado has developed themselves. Yeah, some people at the University of Colorado came up with this and started teaching. Okay. So both those in America, it's harder to read about what's happening in Israel because a lot of the writing is done in Hebrew. From what I could gather in Israel, speakers to avoid binary implications, either about themselves or just to avoid the binary in the world, will switch back and forth between masculine and feminine from verb to verb or adjective to adjective. Okay. That's interesting. That sounds like a nightmare if that's your like second language. It yeah. doesn't like yeah. a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. And Not he- to discourage them, but... <laughs> Hebrew often drops pronouns, so you wouldn't say she did this mm-hmm. if the verb already has the feminine ending because yeah. the she's implied. So if you're already dropping your pronouns, but then that's no longer encoded in your verbs, apparently this can become confusing. In terms of dealing with the masculine plural problem, Hebrew speakers, and I've read about this in both Israel and America, will basically just combine the masculine plural ending im and the feminine plural ending ot to make the ending imot or sometimes otin. Okay, okay. And that can be used on verbs, nouns, or adjectives. They all take the same index. So in 1983, in this same interview with the photos and where she talked a bit about gender, Yona revealed to the public that two years earlier she'd been diagnosed with cancer and that a doctor had given her eight years to live. That's interesting. Eight years to live. Yeah, that's quite a long span to get such a time limit on. Yeah, a long but specific. Yeah, yeah I'm not quite sure how they figured that out, but that's what they told him. Okay. Joanna emphasised in interviews that she didn't want to be referred to as sick with cancer. She said she was well with cancer. She continued to write. She published her last book of poetry, Turot, in 1985, and she didn't live for eight years. She died on September 29th in 1985, aged 41. Okay. At the time of her death, she had many unpublished poems, and her editor has since published some of those posthumously. Yona's poetry continued to grow in popularity after her death. She also remained very controversial up into the 21st century. Yeah, she's going to stay that way. She's going to stay that way, yeah. Um, as recently as 2010, Israeli high school teacher Edna Resch came under fire from the Ministry of Education when she was found to be teaching Yona's poem, You Are My Girlfriend, as part of a class which was called Pride and Prejudice, Single-Sex Couples, Perversion or Choice. Oh, well, this okay. Oh, well, <laughs> so there's some stuff to unpack there. My <laughs> first question is, Yona had a poem called You Are My Girlfriend? Yona did have a poem called You Are My Girlfriend. You know, and we discussed earlier how she was lacking straightforward poems about how this was you my, are girlfriend. my girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I haven't been able to find this poem oh, in English. Ah. Fair enough. And I'm not really sure how much it's in Yona's voice or not. Could be in the voice of a man. Could be in the voice <laughs> of a man. Uh, the interesting thing about this poem that I do know is that it uses the masculine form of the word you. Ah. So you oh. masculine are my girlfriend. Which doesn't come across in English, and my favourite attempt to translate that is the title, Hey Man, You're My Girlfriend. (laughs) You're my girlfriend, bro. (laughs) Time to become a Hebrew translator. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. Who did this and why? (laughs) They just 
to know how to convey that, and that's what they show. I know, oh, like, casual implication there. Does Hebrew have a formal and a, like, no. informal second person pronoun? Hebrew no. is not a formal language. Okay, so I can, should just imagine that all Hebrew starts with hey man. <laughs> yeah, like, you are my girlfriend is tonally the correct translation. Okay. Although the gender doesn't. But you are my girlfriend, dude, is like... <laughs> I mean, the gender's there, but at what cost? <laughs> no, no, we can get there. We can get there. Let's think. Can we though? Yeah. I think you're at footnote point with that, to be honest. You are. There's nothing you can do. No. I mean, in the Hebrew is a sex maniac. The translation... <laughs> I've forgotten about it. <laughs> You've forgotten about Hebrew as a sex maniac? Look, there's been a lot going on, frankly. <laughs> yeah, in Hebrew as a sex maniac, the translation I read, which had the line, every you female is you male, that was their way of translating every art is atta. So, you male are my girlfriends. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I'm glad English doesn't do this. Yeah, me too. That would be such a mess. Yeah. So I haven't read this poem, because it's not in English. From what I can gather, it can be interpreted as being about a trans woman. What? As in I the mean, girlfriend's a trans woman. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, that that makes the hey man, you're my girlfriend's yeah. not fun anymore. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No. Um uh, apparently there's one point where the speaker in the poem refers to the girlfriend as a man, and then a few lines later apologizes for that. Okay. I mean so, this could be like not terrible. Yeah, I'd I'd love to read this in English. Yeah. With footnotes. With a lot of footnotes. If anyone knows of an English translation or speaks Hebrew and is really keen. We spent a lot of time begging for stuff from the audience this episode. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> have. We have. I'm sorry. <laughs> so yeah, Edna Resch was teaching this poem as part of her course, Pride and Prejudice, Single-Sex Couples, Perversion or Choice. Can you tell us a little bit more about this class? Yeah, so it was part of a series of topics covered that were just kind of incredibly controversial topic. So there's one talking about kind of the Arab-Israeli relationship. So when we say that this is a class, do you mean that this was the title of a lecture or do you mean this was the subject for like the term or the semester? I think it was the title of a lecture. Oh, okay. That makes more sense to me. I thought this was just a like, you know, 10 week course on like <laughs> single sex couples. No, from what I could gather, it was say a 10 week course on a variety of controversial, controversial topics. And this was one. Is the class positing that there is a genuine debate to be had here about whether or not same-sex couples are perverted oh. or... Perversional choice is a weird dichotomy to make there, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or is it saying this is how this has been treated, but we know to contextualise it better now? In which case, nice job on the title. I think it's the second one, but I don't have much context. Okay. I will link some articles about this that our listeners can read and see what they can glean from. Edna came under fire for teaching this. I think this was originally from parents of kids in the class. The kids rallied behind her. They wrote to a newspaper and said, look, they're trying to stop our teacher teaching this. Censorship is bad, mm. etc." Mm. And the newspaper, which is Haaretz, got behind her. And so it became quite a big thing. The Minister for Education eventually stepped in and said, look, Edna should not be punished for teaching this, but this has to stop. Oh. And the only English quote I could find from that minister about it was, there are limits. They should have been like, have you seen to film? <laughs> like, we're not teaching that. It's okay. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, that's not satisfactory in any way. <laughs> no. 
So yeah, that happened, but Yona also grew in popularity. She's quite a well-known poet within Israel. Her poetry now has been published in at least 20 languages that I could find a list of, maybe more. So that's everything from like Vietnamese, Chinese, and Japanese to Greek, Yiddish, English, a few. <laughs> I would love to see how all these other languages struggled with gender. So I was just going to close with a quote from literary critic Menachem Ben. He wrote that Yona, quote, elevated Hebrew poetry to peaks that it had not attained since the Bible. Okay. <laughs> so, she certainly elevated Hebrew poetry to peaks not yet visited and different from the Bible in some ways. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. She definitely I suppose not in others. Went places Hebrew poetry hadn't gone before. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like, if she'd done this in English, it still would have been brand new. <laughs> yeah, it's not that she did things that hadn't been done in Hebrew, I guess. She did things that hadn't been done. Yeah. That was a, a wild journey. That was such a wild ride. I'm definitely conditioned to expect our poet episodes to be kind of demure and like, then they have their like one wife and they're just like pretty chill for their whole lives yeah. and no, that. No, it was not that. No. <laughs> it was not that. All right. Well, I enjoyed aspects of that. <laughs> <laughs> With that, we've been Queer as Fact. Thank you for listening. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. I'm Irene. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can also find more episodes on Podbean and iTunes and wherever else you find your podcasts. If you do listen to us on iTunes, we'd love it if you would rate us and leave us a review because it really helps us to reach a wider audience. We'll be back on the 15th of December when we will be bringing you our episode on the front man of Queen, Freddie Mercury. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>